sights to show you. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the 53rd episode of the Sirens of Scream, the lady geek podcast that proves sometimes dead is better. I'm Melissa Megan, and I'm joined by my creepy co-hosts, Jackie DeVore and Sierra Houck. Hello. 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 Tonight, we have a special guest joining us as well, Bob Ryer of the Talking Comics podcast. Thank you for having me back, ladies. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. It's going to be fun. Going to be fun. Ryer in the house. Ryer in the house. Uh, Bob isn't on Twitter, but we do have a a Bob Ryer hashtag going on Twitter, by the way, Kathy. I forgot to tell you that. Yeah. Were you supposed to tell him that? Uh, I don't know if Bob's aware. It's been used for quite a while. (laughs) I've seen people try it. Someone did a... I guess it, I think it's a meme, I guess is what you call it. You have a meme? When, a meme? <laughs> when Jessica and I were at the Alive After Five in Pancho, we had this outdoor festival and we, we judged a cosplay contest. And so she put a picture up with a hashtag and some, one of the people who've guessed it on our show before put up uh, a picture of Matthew McConaughey going, all right, all right, all right, Bob's on Twitter. It's like, no, Bob's not on Twitter. Bob's <laughs> sort of on Twitter, but not officially on Twitter. You should you should search the Bob Ryer hashtag sometime and see what you can find. Really? Will I be scared? I don't know. Oh. I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm guessing, I'm just guessing I'm not the only person who uses it, but maybe I am. <laughs> <laughs> I will check into this and I, I will report back. Okay. So we are now over two years into this show, and it's come wow. to our attention that we've not covered one of the most influential writers in horror history. Someone who has spurred the imagination of countless filmmakers, artists, and even musicians, the creator of Cthulhu, H.P. Lovecraft. We are never too proud to admit when we're taking on a topic that's outside of our corners of expertise. And this one is so huge that we knew we would definitely need one of our resident historians in the house to help out. So I've talked comics with Bob and considered him a dear friend for several years now. And I knew he was not only a fan of Lovecraft's influence in the horror realms, but that he'd also be full of awesome tidbits to share. So Bob is going to uh, bring us on a little trip tonight. We're also going to share some of our own experiences. Although I don't know about you guys, but... It's pretty minimal. <laughs> I, I, I went into this thinking like everything is influenced by Lovecraft and it's going to be hard to narrow it down. Mm-hmm. But I think it kind of like, yeah, it kind of like goes somewhere in the middle where I feel like I don't, I think, I feel like the influence is so vast that I probably don't even know that half of the things that I've, that I've enjoyed yeah, like were a, Lovecraft. A copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah, um, right. Absolutely. It's kind I of like the this- ultimate source material, right? At this point, it goes so far back, yes, you're, you're certainly into some, if not direct influences, at least tastes of in little bits and pieces. Yeah. But before we do that, let's jump into a couple of recommendations real Ooh. quick so we can share something off topic first. Sierra, mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. you to talk to me about Mooner Museum because I love Mooner Museum. Yes, I love the Mooner Museum too. I went there last year and it was wonderful and gross. I'm jealous. And it's so much fun. And I discovered recently that their YouTube page has all of these little like one minute clips about things in their museum. And Ooh. so I went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Those are the best. Learning all about the weird stuff at the, like things that I had seen and then also just like history things and 
nasty stuff and that's a that's a good place to spend some time. Ryan and I went there a few years ago and we also went to Eastern State Penitentiary the same oh, weekend. I, I want to go. Yeah. It's really cool. And uh, and Steve Buscemi does the audio tour. Wow. So you get to listen to him walk you through the, the prison. But back to Winter Museum, we went there and I was very pregnant at the time and my husband actually bailed out before the end of the museum because he just couldn't take any more deformed fetuses. <laughs> he was like, uh-huh. I just can't. Like, this is just, it's you know, it's all the worst nightmares and, like, nerves of first-time parents in little jars mm-hmm. on display there. <laughs> yeah, I was totally tough. fine and all. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but I, I, just as you linked me into this conversation, I was down that rabbit hole looking at videos. Because I've never gotten to go to the museum. And I, I came upon one fairly recent one, Monsters and Marvels. And they're talking about this ancient book from the 1600s. It's by a film named Pere of classical monsters. It was, it was people who had been born differently and oddball uh, concoctions of people. You know, People try to make mermaids and all these sorts of things. I, I don't... It's going to get me going under the bed, into the boxes of books under my bed. But somewhere I bought from that little publisher, Dover Books, an entire book of these woodcuts of odd conjoined twins and oddball people with little with separate mm. you know, little arms sticking out of their shoulders. And, and there it was on a YouTube video. I, I feel completely, um, I, I don't know. Not so creepy as having owned that book before because the museum owns it. <laughs> yeah, it's educational. Exactly. That was just me looking at weird stuff. It's in a museum. <laughs> yeah, they had a really cool exhibit when I visited about the physical effects that could have influenced fairy tales. Uh-huh. Um, so people like, oh gosh, what are some examples? Like rapid hair growth for like Rapunzel and like people mm-hmm. losing fingers and. I'm not even doing it justice, but like all of these conditions that could have explained these like old grim fairy tales. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a book in that one, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Mooter Museum's doing super cool stuff. Well, you, you're going to have me looking at that video library continually now. It's going to be <laughs> what? Oh, I, but now, is it all safe for work? Because that may do it at work. Um, the things that I I saw are, but okay. I'm not gonna. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm not gonna make any problems. I'm guessing you might eventually come across like a deformed penis or something. Yes, <laughs> it's natural. Sierra, your also. other recommendation is a bit cuter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing is <laughs> I found this Etsy store called Loreworks, which is kind of relevant to the the topic that we're discussing today because their logo is a big Cthulhu face (laughs) and this gal she makes really cool horror themed bath products so she makes these she like actually carves her own molds so she has like killer clowns from outer space and beetlejuice Beetlejuice yeah all these really cool like custom-made molds that she pours her handmade soaps into. Oh, look at the cute little mm-hmm. trick-or-treat soaps. Yeah, and she does, like, body wash and bath bombs and all that stuff, too. There's a Cthulhu soap. Yeah, um, <laughs> It spans, like, all all across horror and pop culture. 
That's great. Yeah, she seems like a really cool lady. Awesome. And her Instagram is also fun. It's just the stuff that she's working on. And her handle on there is also Loreworks. Nice. Definitely. That's She's going to get some on me, too. Sierra, you're killing me. <laughs> Looks great, though. Got to get a Cthulhu soap. Mm-hmm. There's an Edgar Allan Poe one. I wonder if they have an H.P. Lovecraft. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, one must. So I have not been watching tons of horror lately because life is kind of a horror right now. <laughs> but I have recently fallen down my own little rabbit hole. And it was when I discovered that I could go into my Prime account and then click on the little HBO thing and Mm -hmm. see stuff that HBO makes, which they have Mm -hmm. a whole category for documentaries, and I just fell right into that rabbit hole. (laughs) And there's two documentaries that I've watched recently that I wanted to tell you guys about. The first one is a little bit horrific, but I guess you could call it real-life horror. It's called Mommy Dead and Dearest. And this is a story, you guys might be familiar with this news story. I, When I saw it, I thought, I don't remember hearing this story at all, and I'm so shocked that I wasn't aware of this. It's about a young girl named Gypsy Rose. Her mother spends the majority of her life kind of getting assistance from various programs for sick children. The girl... Moonchild's uh, system by proxy kind right, of thing. Right. Yeah. And, well, the, the, the girl is, you know, she's in a wheelchair. The mom says she's got leukemia. She's paralyzed from the waist down. She's got asthma. She's got all these different illnesses going on. They get sent to Disney World. They get a house built for them. They get all these things for these programs for sick children. And one day, the little girl, Gypsy Rose, disappears and her mother is found murdered. Oh. And Mm. yeah, and it's the story of basically Gypsy Rose, we find out, is not nearly as young as her mother told everyone she was that or even told her she was right right she's it was basically she's a grown woman pretending to be a child or thought that she was a child and you know you can't stop you can't stop puberty from happening and gypsy got herself a boyfriend and decided to run away from home and it is a really really twisted story just you know for all the way from this mother who has munchausen syndrome and used her child as some kind of tool to get money and attention and things to this poor little girl who you know thought that murder was the only way for her to escape her life so it's it's tragic but damn it's so interesting and i, I just yeah <laughs> the thing about these documentaries i'm finding at hbo is for some reason many of them are older this one's from 2017 the documentary ends and then i have to jump online and like do my own research and be like, Wait, what happened where did this yeah where did this end yeah i don't remember hearing about this whole thing when it happened because really was so recent but yeah this this documentary is fascinating what what made it even more fascinating to me is that gypsy rose is there in the documentary telling her side of the story most of the time yeah i've got to find this one it's really good i also watched beware the slenderman but i believe that sierra already talked about that one on the show yeah which honestly is not like totally worth watching unless you're super into that like the documentary itself wasn't great but like i did you know i did a bunch of research on it afterwards so i got i watched a bunch more videos crime that they're talking about how Mm. these girls get totally caught up in yeah the story i i need to plead ignorance i've heard a lot recently about this whole slender man thing can you fill me in ladies what's the whole 
Is this like Candyman or something, well, or what's going on? <laughs> sort of. Slenderman began as a, I think it was before Creepypasta, right? It began as a story elsewhere. Yeah, um, it was originated on 4chan, I think. At least according to this mm-hmm. documentary, it, be- it began somewhere else. It was a story someone told of a, a faceless, very tall, slender man in a suit who, you know, in some stories steals children, and some stories takes children away to vary it to some mansion in the woods. Long story short, it became a, a bit of a an internet phenomenon, and these two young girls, these two 12-year-old girls, became enraptured with it and obsessed with it, and decided to murder one of their friends to please the the Slenderman. So these are two 12-year-old girls who plotted and carried out, well, didn't carry out successfully, but attempted to carry out a murder of another little girl because they thought Slenderman would would make them one of his proxies, I think was the word they used for it. And there's also that side of maybe they just wanted to kill their friend and are <laughs> yeah. yeah it was like this, bullying going too far kind of thing yeah. maybe just using this bizarre slender man story to kind of plead crazy there mm-hmm. yeah there's also fiction movie out in theaters right now called slender man oh. that's not related to the the crime, the true crime, but this one in, in the theaters. I haven't seen it yet, but I have it pulled up, just the Google page of it, and it has 3 out of 10 on IMDb and 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe geez. wait until it's at least out. We were talking yeah. about this at dinner last <laughs> night, and what Ryan had told me was that basically they started making the film, and then there was so much outcry against it. From the families who were involved and the people in this town, that the the movie essentially wasn't completed. So they kind of just like mashed a bunch of footage that they had started together to try to make something out of it. But it's essentially like mm-hmm. an unfinished gobbledygook, <laughs> and that's why it ended up being so terrible. So on the lighter side of things, <laughs> I yes. want to talk about a different documentary that's not horror in any way, but it's so damn enjoyable that I have to share it with you guys anyway. And because we talked about this a little bit on a previous episode, but it is the documentary called Tickled. I had talked about a show on Netflix called Dark Tourist, and it's hosted oh. by David Ferrier. Real quick, we actually went through all of Dark Tourist over here on the DeVore house, and when we got <laughs> to the end, we didn't realize we were at the end, uh-huh. and both Drew and I kind of screamed at the screen a little no! bit, like, why the hell is there not more? <laughs> yeah, when it starts to, like, play it, the next, yeah, the like, show, or, like, so good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I felt very, I felt very unfulfilled, too, at the end of it. (laughs) But David Ferrier is the host of that great show that I fell in love with. And when I started following him on Twitter, I found out that he had made this documentary called Tickled before he did that TV show. And I finally found it on that HBO app. And it's from 2016. This is really weird, guys. So... Just hang with me. I don't even know how to explain this. We're hanging. We're hanging. It's basically about a... He discovers that there's something called competitive sport tickling. Stop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and so he, like, he, he tries... He starts digging around. He finds this one company that's hosting this. They invite, like, young men, athletes, to go on film and tickle each other and as he starts to dig around in this he finds that there is um not only does this company refuse to talk to him about it but there's like 
there's some kind of like mysterious like he can't figure out who owns the company is the woman who's writing to him real like there's this whole like weird hidden world this hidden like community and hidden world and you know it all starts because he sends he sends a normal email to this company saying would you like to talk to me for a documentary about this you know and he mm-hmm. gets this vicious nasty email sent back to him from this woman who basically says we don't want to be connected with uh gay journalists we know we we know <laughs> oh, that you no. we know that you are homosexual and nothing that you know we don't want our world like tainted by your homosexual <laughs> de- depravity <laughs> this woman just goes off what? on him yeah and he's like what the fuck <laughs> like what yeah. T- totally taken off and of course it just makes him want to dig in further so he starts digging in and of course unlocks this huge weird world of like there's not only these videos being made but there's this whole group of people who have like secret identities and the person who owns the company isn't the person who he thinks owns the company and there's this like convict behind the whole thing some crazy like rich guy who's paying all these weird all these young men all over the world to be in these videos and then like the young men he finally gets one man to talk to him and if the if the men try to stop the videos from being published online because a lot of these guys are trying to pursue like professional athletic careers so they try to stop the videos and then this company attacks them and will go on and like start a website in their name and put all the videos with them in it on this website and plaster it all over the place and they yeah it's insane it's totally insane and it's so crazy that there then is a follow-up video a short 20 minute follow-up video called the tickle king that gives you a peek at what happens after they finish tickled because there's more that happens to david and his friend who who created this dylan reeve is his name the directors of this documentary the people that they dealt with in that documentary then come back and follow up with them later to to uh do more damage and, and like screw with them more so they had to add on another short after that to follow up and man you guys want a rabbit hole this is a really fun yes. one to fall down <laughs> it's like eight millimeter with little piggies it is crazy it is i we said we you know we sat down we're like oh this is gonna be fun and silly we started watching it and both of us just sat there with our mouths open the whole time like what the hell are we seeing what is going on <laughs> there's somebody who loves something bizarre and baffling always so yeah it is absolutely baffling not only that this happens you think that's the weird part that's not the weird part that's the most normal part of this whole documentary is that these guys are tickling each other (laughs) (laughs) it goes totally off the rails but i know i mentioned it before so i had to bring it back up and let you guys know that it is one thousand percent worth looking up and watching absolutely oh yeah that's that. Jackie is hoarding recommendations for our 31 days of Halloween. Oh, before. not fair. So I didn't she, know we were allowed to do that. So she won't give us any. <laughs> okay, well, I'll give you one extra beyond the ones I put in my thing. All right. See, Bob's got me covered. Go for yeah. it, Bob. Give us okay. what you got. First, you guys last summer had an artificial intelligence episode. And one of my favorite movies in that genre, it's, a, it's an oldie, there was talk of a remake that's never come about. It's called Colossus the Forbin Project. It comes from a novel by a British fellow named D.F. Jones. There are actually three novels. The first novel is great. The second two are awful. But Colossus is 
a mountain-sized computer that is set up so that the defense system of the United States will now be free of human error and human emotion. It will control everything so nothing bad can possibly happen. Created by uh, Professor Charles Forbin. They set this up. They're doing a whole presidential news conference, and they're typing in questions to Colossus. And on the screen, basically the first thing it says is, there is another system. The Russians have one, too. So sort of just like the Manhattan Project, where the Russians had an atom bomb 20 years faster than we thought because they were spies. We're not sure how this happened, just maybe great ideas in the same place. Colossus demands to be connected to the Russian system guardian. And we debate about that a while. We say yes. We connect it, and then it starts, they start sharing information we're not happy with. They're creating new modes of physics and mathematics. It's like, we better shut this off until we can sort this out. We, we break the connection. Resume connection or action will be taken. What sort of action, we ask? We don't get an answer back. We wait. We, oh, it'll, it'll be okay. We wait a little bit. Missiles launched. The two computers start firing missiles at the, each of the other countries. We have artificial intelligence taken to the level of it can actually destroy the, not the world itself, the ability of humanity to live on if we start firing nuclear missiles around. It was directed by a fellow named Joe Sargent, who did a lot of television work back then. I really believe this was meant to be a television movie. It's got a lot of those sort of TV faces. Stars a fellow named Eric Braden, who right now has been on that soap opera, The Young and the Restless, for the last hundred years. He's John Jacob Astor in Titanic, if you've seen that film. And in the 60s, he was in a TV show called The Rat Patrol under his real name, which is Hans Gudegast. Very, very German. So he sort of has that Dr. Frankenstein thing, and that even plays into the movie as they try to find a way past this computer's defenses, it's in a mountain with nuclear radiation surrounding it. How do you get in? How do you find your way past it? What this movie is, I know that Harlan Ellison sued James Cameron and won over Terminator, over two short stories he wrote that Cameron actually admitted to sort of swiping. The entire backstory of Skynet in Terminator is Colossus. The computer controlling everything once it becomes self-aware and firing missiles around. It is a brilliant piece of thoughtful science fiction in that period where they're doing tons of it. It's only a couple of years past the 2001 A Space Odyssey. It only falls apart a little bit because the you look at the computers and they have reels of tape. Hmm. But that was... This is nearly 50 years ago, and they were thinking of it as the near future. And that near future with computers with tape was still there. There's something, I, I sent the trailer around, there's something goofy in the trailer that, without the right context, his main assistant, a woman named Susan Clark, who you know from Webster, if you remember that show from back in the day. She was a universal contract player back then, and she is awesome as his lead uh, second scientist. And the only way they think they can start to pass information back and forth, because Colossus wants to look at everything Corbin does as the most dangerous person on Earth to him, is they pretend to be a couple. And so 
it takes up about three minutes of the movie that they they with the trailers of the time you had to have something like that in the trailer so basically that whole section of the movie is in the trailer for no particular reason but it's the only trailer i can find because they just finally put this out on blu-ray on dvd universal to their discredit they do a lot of great stuff in horror and science fiction they released a dvd in full frame one three three to one in a movie that was in glorious widescreen so the Blu-ray from Screen Factory, Shout Factory, is highly recommended from these quarters, and it's Colossus, the Forbin Project. Has anyone ever watched Colossus? Probably. Yeah, I, I haven't even heard of it. Ooh. I haven't, even though I know that you've mentioned it somewhere else on another show. Probably. Sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a really neat movie that has some shocks and surprises. I'll just leave it at that, because uh, I don't want to spoil it. Give it a chance. A lot of people, you guys are not that way, but there are many other younger people. I'll say, oh, it's this movie from 1970. It's like, before I was born. <laughs> Look, I was born in 1956. My movie collection goes back into the early 1900s, as does my music collection. You need to know and have that thirst for where things come from, which is why your show is so great. It's always about learning stuff. So that's why I'm, I'm so pleased to be here. Tonight. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Now, since I'm gonna, I'll, I will add one other thing. Then, really quickly, there's a, a small movie. It got some theatrical release, but I caught it on this. It's premiere on the Sci-Fi Channel back when it was still spelled out Sci-Fi. Mm -hmm. It's called One Hundred Feet. Anybody know this movie? No. Okay, it's directed by a fellow named Eric Red, which obviously is a pseudonym of some kind, and stars Famke Jansen and Bobby Carnival. I like Famke Jansen. As the movie opens, Famke is being sent home on a home arrest kind of thing. She has murdered her husband, who was abusive, and she's now under house arrest, hence the 100 feet. She has a bracelet. She can't go more than 100 feet from where the, the sensor is in her house. And Bobby Carnival was her husband's partner. And he's in charge of watching after her name is Marnie in the movie. Pretty quickly, we discover that she's not alone in her house anymore. Also inhabiting the house is the spirit of her husband. Mm. Ooh, yeah. This gets to some really very creepy places. There are a couple of moments of out-and-out -out gore that are stunning when they show up because the movie hasn't been like that, but it really helps set the tone for what the finale would be. Great little movie. Uh, when it came out, uh, Melissa knows because she's seen pictures of this house of mine. I have, uh, our friend Carolyn Coca, the first time she stopped over my house, said, you have more home media in your living room than anyone I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I want to own the things. I'm one of those. So I wanted to own this movie. It came out as a Hollywood video exclusive. Remember them? And so I walk in the store. And I, I want to buy that. No, you can't buy this. It. Only for rent. I want to give you $30 today instead of $3. Why can't I just buy one? No, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so, so, so I waited three weeks and bought one for $3 because they had about 300 of them on the shelf that they couldn't get rid of. Like, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Real smart. Sure anyway. Then. Yeah, moving on, on two things that are more nearly into our topic, I have two younger things. One is it's a young adult 
graphic novel called Call of Cthulhu by Evan Dorkin and Sarah Dyer. And I'm going to say something, Melissa, that you're going to jump on right away. This is a cross between H.P. Lovecraft, Disney Princesses, and Elsa Bloodstone Monster Hunter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Go right from the, the thing at the, at the back. Being a teenager isn't easy, especially after you learn you carry the bloodline of Lovecraft's great old ones in your veins. Instead of getting a summer job and checking out colleges, Kalatafati finds herself battling supernatural monsters, human assassins, and her uncle, the dreaded king in yellow. She must resist his call to embrace her own chaotic heritage and join the family business, in quotes, as well as present the awakening of the terrible deity asleep and dreaming in the corpse city of Relier, the dread dead one Cthulhu. Prepare yourself for weird action, adventure, and mystery in the mighty mythos manner. This is both really charming and really scary together. Dorker and Dyer do lots of humor books, and that's there too, but it's always tinged with a certain darkness. And I had seen this on the shelf in the store and walked past it three or four times and just, oh, yeah, that's a cute joke. It's a wonderful pun. But once I started reading it, our lead character is so layered, so full of life and agency that I said, all right, I got it. And I love this, bought this as gifts for people, sent it around, and it is just amazing. So I love her Cthulhu. green tentacle hair. That is what you got to have, right? She's got <laughs> big, big things to do. And she has frenemies that will meet and you'll be one way and then another and then back away again. Uh, it's it's a fun book. Highly recommended from our friends at Dark Horse. And it's in this weird sort of not quite comic book size. It's almost like a manga. That's only $13. So if, if you're interested, it's a cheapie. Very cool. The last one is something I had encountered years before and never quite picked up for a reason, but Got it a couple of years back at the New York Comic Con. It is a board book, a little educational book by C.J. Henderson and Erica Henderson. Erica Henderson is the artist on Marvel's Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. And this book is called Baby's First Mythos. And what we have here is the alphabet as, as run through H.P. Lovecraft. So it's the Eldritch alphabet. A is for Azathoth, who dwells in the center, dreaming us all from a place we can't enter. We can imagine what C is for, correct? C is for Cthulhu. Why is it Alicent Relier a dreaming, one side of whom would leave most of us gibbering, drooling, and screaming? We also have the numbers. We have some fairy tales. And it's in her very singular art style, which is kind of, generally kind of goofy. In the best sense of that word, she is absolutely one of my favorites, but it's here tinged with a serious darkness that really pulls into place all the things that are Lovecraft. Ms. Henderson and her father used to do the icon convention here on Long Island up at the Stony Brook University, and he had a table filled with Lovecraftian fiction and books and posters and so on. And that's where I saw the original version of this has come out since it was a Kickstarter, and now it's around otherwise. And... When I went to New York Comic Con the first time and saw Erica Anderson there and she had this book and I mentioned her dad and whatever, she got a little a little teary, you know, mentioning those days. And in my book, she she is 2014, she signed it as she does with her initials and drew a little baby Cthulhu with a rattle. 
I got a gift of this a year ago for a friend of mine who just had a little one who's named Ash after Ash from Evil Dead. Aww. So I wanted one for, for him. And so she wrote, this tome belongs to, and she wrote Ash, and drew a little baby in a diaper with a chainsaw hand. <laughs> I mean, that's good stuff. That's cute. Yeah. I like this one. T is for Hounds of Tindalos. Dallas, yes. Who appear in angles <laughs> many in many a form to destroy all attempting to travel through time and to feast on the remains while still warm. <laughs> <laughs> But isn't he a cute little hound, though? I mean, yeah. yeah. He's, 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 he's charming. He's cute. S is for Shabbos and <laughs> Pikmin. Everyone's in here. If you, if you know someone who has a little one who's, who's in the nerd geek community, as we all are, this would probably it would make the parents very happy to have something a little different than the usual. That's cute. That's it for me. I think, how about we take a, a real quick break, and then we need to launch into some H.P. Lovecraft, because we have a ton of material to cover. Okay. Sounds good. Bob's got something special for us. going to let Bob take the introduction on this topic because that's what we have him here for. (laughs) He is more of an expert on this than any of us and while we have all gathered a little bit of our own information to share tonight I think well nobody introduces things better than Bob so. (laughs) Okay again no pressure. To quote from the call of Cthulhu, the most merciful thing in this world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its content. So, Sirens, might I welcome you to the online campus of Miskatonic University? 
<laughs> that Ivy Walled institution, as did Yogg-Sothoth, Brett Cthulhu, and Abdul Al-Hazret's Necronomicon itself, all sprang from the mind of H.P. Lovecraft. Now a judge to be a major literary figure by such august publishers as Penguin Classics and the Library of America, in his lifetime, his work was virtually unknown except to readers of cheap pulp magazines and were never published on the covers and spine of a proper book. He died nearly penniless without an inkling of the afterlife his writings would have. More than three quarters of a century past his death, Lovecraft's influence on weird fiction is second only to Edgar Allan Poe's having spread to film, television, comics, video, and board games, rock music, t-shirts, plush dolls, fuzzy slippers, you name it. <laughs> but there's also a dark side to this dark master, as some of the themes in his work were fueled by a raging xenophobia towards anything that was other, and was certainly and truly reprehensible. And that can complicate one's enjoyment, and that's something over the last few years has really ha has risen. So. As we explore the life, work, and continuing influence of the old gentleman of Providence, perhaps I can shed some light into those unlitten corners and provide just a glimpse into both the real and fictional worlds of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, Howard Philip Lovecraft was born August 20th, we just missed his birthday, 1890, to Winfield Scott Lovecraft and Susan Phillips Lovecraft in Providence, Rhode Island. A solidly middle-class couple Although Susie's father was a fairly important manufacturing entrepreneur in the region. Things went fairly well for the young parents initially, with their precocious youngster reading by age three, spending much of his time reading through his grandfather's copious library. But Winfield, Lovecraft's dad, would be committed to an asylum in 1893, ravaged by what was probably dementia caused by syphilis, contracted during his travels as a salesman. At the death of her husband, Susie and Howard would take up residence with her father Whipple, but distraught over her new status, she began to crack herself. Now, although young Howard's imagination and later works were certainly fueled by his access to works as disparate as the Arabian Nights, Bullfinch's mythology, and numerous works on astronomy and science, his mother's lack of loving physical connection to her son added to a cloying overprotectiveness and, and punctuated by heinous comments about his appearance describing him to his face as hideous drove his nascent personality inwards upon itself to certainly to, to no surprise by 1900 grandfather Whipple phelps business interests had taken a downturn with a failed dam project the final straw with the entire family now in financial decline Whipple passed in 1904, with Susie and Howard moving into smaller and smaller quarters as the years would pass. Howard leaves school soon after. Remember, outside schooling back then was, was not mandatory. He had a raft of anxieties of his own, suffering what would now be described as a nervous breakdown in 1908. His mother Susie would also succumb to maladies both physical and mental in 1921. His circumstances seemed bleak indeed. Eventually, his way out of these mental morasses, at least at some level, was through writing, with letters to amateur press magazines, the fanzines of their time, that created connections to other like-minded authors that in some cases would last the rest of his lifetime. Lovecraft would pen apparently over 100,000 letters in his lifetime. Actually, probably 
putting more words in letters than he ever would have as an author. And they have been collected. There, are, I have them here. There are five volumes of Lovecraft's letters to, to folks. I actually wasn't aware of that until I started reading some of the many links and things that I yeah. came across that most of his writing was in letters. <laughs> and they, they were amazing pieces of work. In some cases, they were the fuels for other stories. They were encouragement to other authors, particularly a fellow who, name you might recognize, Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, wrote to H.P. Lovecraft as a teenager. And we'll get into that a little bit later as well. I wonder why he wasn't steered more toward, like, journalism. Well, he, he did start an amateur astronomy gazette, so to speak, was doing criticism. I think his love of Edgar Allan Poe and the Arabian Nights were always going to drive him toward something a little different. Mm-hmm. He also discovered his lack of formal schooling. He, he would have loved to have been an astronomer, but he was not very good at mathematics, and those two things go hand in hand, so he found himself out of that loop. Jumping back in, his, his earliest fiction, such as The Alchemist and the Tomb, would be published in those United Amateur Press journals, and with those works heavily, heavily influenced by Poe, followed by pieces cut from the same cloth as another author he discovered, there were tales of fantasy, gods, and dreamland penned by Irish Lord Dunsany. And they're all interesting, but they're not quite Lovecraft yet. The story for me that stands as that turning point is called Dagon from 1919, which tells of a sailor who discovers an odd island thrust up out of the depths along with his strange inhabitant. Now, some of the elements there expanded and deepened as his own skill set group would point Lovecraft toward the creation of, honestly, it's a genre hitherto unmined by anyone, where he welded together horror and science fiction into something completely of his own, a cosmic horror. It's all about man's place in the cosmos. And he would later describe, both in letters to those other authors we discussed, and a very well-received monograph he wrote called Supernatural Horror and Literature, that for his taste, those witches and like beasties had sort of run their course for him. But here, and, and I quote, The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strangest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Now, that sentiment would certainly power nearly all of the major works he, he would then create, particularly the stories comprised in what are now referred to as the Cthulhu mythos. These connected stories with their underlying themes of, it's probably dangerous to do so, but I'm going to quote the Necronomicon of Al- Abdul Al-Haz right here. So be careful. If you see tentacles running over your, your, your window ledge or whatever, just run. I think we're reaching into the danger zone here but go ahead bob (laughs) jackie loves tentacles just saying (laughs) okay Okay. Uh, i'm gonna try to give this my my best reading nor is it to be thought that man is either the oldest or the last of earth's masters or that the common bulk of life and substance walk alone the old ones were the old ones are and the old ones shall be not in the spaces we know but between them They walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us unseen. They walk unseen and foul where the words have been spoken and the rites howled at their season. The wind gibbers with their voices and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forests and crush the city. Yet may not forest nor city behold the hand that smites. What he was about is that a race of beings from other dimensions had designs on our planet. They were here before and lost their foothold through 
odd means. It will be explained as these stories went on over the years. And although some of the earlier tales, such as the Nameless City and the Hound and the Festival, hinted these themes of man's minuscule place in the cosmos compared to these beings, it was with 1926's The Call of Cthulhu that things, and quite literally things in this case, fell into place, and from there, his richest period as an author would begin. In that story, a young man acquires the papers of his uncle, Professor George Gamble Angel, who has passed rather mysteriously. Within these files lie the professor's research into the Cthulhu cult, sectioned into discussions of year-old cult activity in New Orleans, with more modern events tied together, such as the odd dreams of a local artist, that occur at the same moment as a, as, a, as a Scandinavian freighter discovers an abandoned yacht, save for one mad inhabitant clutching a stone idol of an odd figure with humanoid form, dragon claws and wings, and a giant octopus for a head. They then find an island not on the charts. Turns out to be filled with giant monoliths and temples, none obeying the laws of Euclidean geometry, and worse, inhabited by hordes of noxious creatures all in service to great Cthulhu himself, now awakened from his eon-long slumber. It is one of those things when you read it the first time as I did, I had never seen anything like that before. And I was hooked, just completely and utterly. Has anyone ever read The Call of Cthulhu? Sorry, no. I think I've read bits of it. <laughs> like, you know, excerpts. Right. It is usually quoted in now, at this point, great works of modern horror fiction. Right. Yeah. Later, later on, when we, we discuss some things, there is a group called the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and they do all sorts of, sort of role-playing folks, and they were doing props that you could use to do the Cold Cthulhu game and so on. They started doing radio plays, and then made a couple of motion pictures, and one of them is The Call of Cthulhu. And it is probably the most faithful adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft by anybody ever. But I digress. Now, following soon after The Call of Cthulhu in a burst of creativity, and I'm going to give the short strip, but we're going to discuss some individual, I hope, later on. The Color Out of Space, beautiful, pure science fiction. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, The Dunwich Horror, The Whisper in Darkness, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and what I and many others feel to be the pinnacle of his longer works, a novella at the Mountains of Madness. In that one, it seems as if all the particulars of the Eldritch universe, he, he was trying to create, came together an epic tale of truly deep geologic time. One of the only survivors of a tragedy that befalls the Miskatonic University Antarctic Expedition, this is 1930, where Admiral Byrd had just gone to the pole. Uh, he feels he has to break his vow of silence, lest others venture into that foreboding continent. Not to spoil too much, but the Miskatonic crew discovered something that changes the course of the history of life on Earth. An earlier race come down from, from other dimensions has not only inhabited the Earth, but created all life on it. Their creations were beasts called Shagas, who could assume any form needed to complete the task set by their slave masters. And therein lies the tale. Now, if some of that Arctic and shape-shifting stuff sounds familiar, there's no question that John W. Campbell, in quotes, borrowed many of these concepts <laughs> for his short story, Who Goes There, 
which would form the basis for both film versions of the thing. John Carpenter is a huge, well, first of all, he's a huge fan of the original version of the thing. If you remember Halloween, they're actually showing it on television during the Dr. Dementia Marathon. And when he decided to remake the thing, it wasn't a remake. He was going to do the novel and harken back to Lovecraft. John Carpenter at one point was going to do a remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon and tie Lovecraft into it, and sadly that did not. Oh, that would have been neat. Guillermo del Toro, Melissa and I have spoken about this, Guillermo del Toro was contracted at two different studios to do a film version of At the Mountains of Madness. Paramount passed. He got Universal to pony up $140 million. Wow. Yes. They got him a movie star to star as one of the professors, Tom Cruise, which is give or take, depending. Universal demanded from Guillermo del Toro, this has to be PG-13. Uh. He said, okay, first of all, if I do Lovecraft, it's, and it's the, it's the 30s, the only people on the expedition are men. So you don't have to worry about there being sex or nudity. <laughs> what I can't, what he, what he said to them was, I can't speak to what a rating board will think about two hours of unrelenting darkness and horror. They might say it's an R. I can't promise you anything with $140 million riding on. So he walked away. So more power to him. <laughs> but I want to see, see that movie because Hellboy is very Lovecraftian. Yeah. It's such a shame because I know he's been wanting to make that project for so very long and he keeps referring to it as like his ultimate dream project. Uh, and, and it would be, there's a, a documentary I'll recommend now to everyone that's called Lovecraft Fear of the Unknown that is filled with wonderful talking heads. Caitlin Kiernan, Neil Gaiman, John Carpenter, Guillermo del Toro, Ramsey Campbell. When you see Guillermo speak about Lovecraft, it is with such joy that you know that he he wants to do that and it's just so far beyond him but no one should ever tell guillermo no about anything yes. <laughs> as, as you said to me once no one puts uh, guillermo in a corner that's right <laughs> <laughs> moving quickly along uh, most of the stories that, that lovecraft actually had published were in the pulp magazine weird tales which had debuted in 1923 and swiftly became the preeminent magazine publisher of weird fiction now, not only did HPL's work find favor with the readership, but with other authors as well, as more letters followed with people with such other leading lights as Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian, and August Derleth, who wrote tons and tons of stuff back then. And of course, the young Robert Block. Here's one of those tidbits for you guys. 30 years ago at, at the Icon Convention here at Stonebrook, Robert Block was going to appear. But it's six degrees of separation. I got to shake the hand of someone who knew H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, wow. And yeah, he, he'd written in the Lovecraftian vein for years when he was writing for Weird Tales. The editor of Weird Tales, a fellow named Farnsworth Wright, who I'll speak about a little bit further out here, he and, and, and Lovecraft had a rather cantankerous relationship. And Robert Block, one of his earliest stories is called The Shambler from the Stars. And he wanted his narrator, Lovecraftian narrator, it's usually, it's usually in the first person, usually ending in italics as they go mad from whatever's going on in the story. <laughs> Robert Block wants to write a story where his character, basically himself, goes to Providence to visit what amounts to H.P. Lovecraft to learn some of these terrible secrets. And at the end of the story, the Lovecraft character is going to be 
killed by giant tentacles from beyond the stars that are ripped to shreds and so on. Barnesworth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales, went insane with that. You can't do that. He's a real person, and he's going to sue us, and he's, you have to get permission. So Robert Block wrote to H.P. Lovecraft to ask for permission to kill him in a story. <laughs> Lovecraft wrote back this long formal letter on parchment paper with, with, with like seven different signatures, one of whom was the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, the author of the Necronomicon himself, Ludwig Prin, who wrote Unspeakable Coltons, and, and he, all these weird people he had write these things to it. And the story went forward. Lovecraft would write a sequel. It's one of the last things he wrote called The Haunter of the Dark that features a narrator who's an author who happens to be wandering around Providence. His name is Robert Blake, who also wanders into some really, really bad places. But it, it's, it's those, that's that Lovecraft circle that these authors in their time through the 20s and 30s would write stories within the Cthulhu mythos add bits and pieces to it, other weird gods, other strange books. And that, that continues right up to the present day. And I, on our last show, uh, Melissa was speaking, last time she was on, was speaking about A Study in Emerald by Neil Gaiman, which is a really great little piece of work. He also did something called Shagat's Old Peculiar, where two of the Lovecraftian beasties are sitting in a bar complaining about Lovecraft. <laughs> he never tells our story right. It's like, what was wrong with him? And, <laughs> And it, it's, it's a game you can play and that started 90 years ago. Funny thing is that all these people are adding to the, the cosmic landscape. Lovecraft at Weird Tales, yes, he had a fandom. For the Call of Cthulhu, he received the wondrous payment of $165. Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, he, was, he was not doing particularly well then. Now, in that relationship, not only did he not get paid very well, Farnsworth Wright, would reject the stories just out of hand. Just because Egypt didn't understand, didn't get it, and he would demand major changes. What Lovecraft would do, we figured out fairly quickly, was I'll just sit on it for a month and I'll send it back to him. And he'll never <laughs> notice that he's not reading it anyway because he oh, wow. doesn't get it. And so they'd end up being published. Th this would work for a while, but he writes, again, as, as, as I describe and so many do, at the Mountains of Madness, which is a long work, certainly. And Farnsworth Wright rejected as too long. And HP was absolutely devastated. He always felt like his work was substandard to begin with, and those sort of things ate away at him eventually. Part of it is the only reason he only submitted stories to begin with was the urging of someone who's very important that I've yet to mention, and that's Sonia Green, who had married HP Lovecraft March 3rd, 1924. You're probably saying, this guy managed to, to find someone? This guy got married? <laughs> Out of all this, where she was an amateur author herself, which is how they met at, at one of those gatherings. I, I think in this crowd, I, if I told this story in most places, it wouldn't go over very well. But I think right here, it's going to get a lovely reaction. <laughs> one, of their, one of their first dates was sort of a moonlit walk through the woods. And while they were doing it, they, hold this, they heard this weird, creepy groaning sound in the woods. And instead of them running away, they, they, they ended up collaborating on a horror story called The Horror at Martin's Beach. That's romantic, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of adorable. Right. I like uh, long walks on the beach and writing scary stories together. Scary. Yes. <laughs> now, Sonia was a worldly New York divorcee and businesswoman. 
she must have also been a very special person as she convinced Lovecraft to move with her to New York, leaving his beloved Providence behind. To say he was beloved of Providence at his direction, on his tombstone is carved the words, I am Providence. Jeez. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's still right there near, near one of his old haunts, so to speak. That would seem, that move to New York would seem to have been the start of a broader life for Lovecraft, considering his previous upbringings and so on. And indeed, he began some of his major works while in New York City. But the problem is, he always considered himself a gentleman poet. One should not be accepting money for, for such things. So he basically declined to look for any sort of gainful employment at all, settling instead for ghostwriting and revisionary works on other stories, including Harry Houdini, which, with whom he wrote In Prison with the Pharaohs. And for those works, he got the glorious sum of a half a cent a word. Oh, God. Now, meanwhile, Sonia is out. She has, she has a hat shop. She's a designer. She's running all over the place trying to keep body and soul together. And her husband is sitting at home writing 100,000 letters to other people. They were in love. She, he was an erudite person in his own way, rather distinguished. And I, I get that. But he, he was no Distinguished help. don't pay the bills. Exactly. <laughs> and, and eventually, Sonia's business interests forced her to spend time away from New York. Almost instantly, Lovecraft moved back to Providence. Here's something that really, it's, it's, it's a little-known piece of fact. Sonia, because she did love this guy, she offered to buy the house that Lovecraft and his aunts, who were now running with him since the death of his mom, and his mom died in the same asylum <laughs> her husband did. Yeah. In a weird piece of sad serendipity. Sonia was going to buy the house they were living in so they could all live together. And the aunts were so nonplussed by that. Oh, no, you can't. They didn't like her marrying her anyway. She was older, and we'll get to something else, too. Sonia and Howard would be divorced March 25th, 1929. Though they divorced amicably, she burned all his letters to her. At least it, it is said that she did. Quick aside, by the way, Miss Sonia Green, I guess to speak to her taste and such thing, had once dated Alastair Crowley. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> so there was something about, you know, inwardly driven, weird horror guys. She was into goths. Mm -hmm. She has a type. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knew there were goths in 1929? But she seemed to have been one and found a couple to, to hang with. But without Sonia's support, Farnsworth Wright and Weird Tales was... Uh, rejected the Dunwich Horror as well after his rejection of At the Mountains of Madness, Lovecraft couldn't write for a year. And part of it, it it's that he thought that the greatest fear was the fear of the unknown. And so those very anxieties about everything, the other people in his life, the others who weren't like him, that fear of the unknown they wrote so brilliant about, it affected his real life worldview. As one of thought of himself as a gentleman of old New England from the 18th century, an 18th century stock, Mayflower child. With that conceit so ingrained in, and add that piled onto his troubled upbringing, now diminished circumstances, he felt assailed from all corners as to his mind, his world was crumbling around him as things changed. And so that xenophobia would manifest itself through some wildly, the only word to use is racist ramblings in his letters, as well as some that found their way into his fiction in a story I, don't, I 
Well, so you mentioned this one, the horror at Red Hook, which was written while he was living in the melting pot of New York City as he describes the rabble and the, the savage hordes of half-human. It is appalling. It is reprehensible. It is hideous. He describes at, the at every level. Aryan civilization as being all that stands against the primitive half-ape savagery of lesser races. Yes. He, he wrote a letter to Robert E. Howard. Again, H.P. Lovecraft was like six foot one, 120 pounds dripping wet of completely non-functional human being at a lot of levels. He writes to, to Robert E. Howard, who was big Bob Howard, the, the brawny creator of Conan, who really was all those things. If you've ever seen the movie with Vincent D'Onofrio, that's really what Howard looked like. He's writing to Howard as if he's going to defend the white race with sword in hand like a Viking and covered in blood. He'll do. If he got a paper cut, he would have been disabled for a month. Nobody. <laughs> and, and, and he's spouting this nonsense. Now, uh, eventually, as, as later in life, he would explore some of the rest of the world. Instead of writing, he, he took some travels to Florida, New Orleans, and did some things. And he backed away from some of that stuff, but it's all on the public record. And it is, it is heinous. I found the interactions between him and his wife very interesting, too. Considering that Sonia Green was of Jewish persuasion. Right, right. And she apparently confronted him multiple times about his views, trying to kind of figure out why he felt the way he did or, what, or trying to make him understand why it didn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> he responded by saying to her, she no longer belonged to these mongrels. <laughs> That's what he said to her when she confronted him about her being Jewish. And this, I have this little quote from her. She says, whenever we found ourselves in the racially mixed crowds that characterize New York, Howard would become livid with rage. He seemed almost to lose his mind. There's no excuse for it. There is explanation in a way in that a person like himself who is so insular, so unworldly, had no way of coping with the world changing. Now, I, I don't want to be political before I get into some other talks about this, but we we have discovered over the last couple of years that there are a lot of people in this country who don't think in the same way that Ms. Green did even 90 years ago, in that we look at everyone who's an other as the enemy of civilization somehow. And whether that's in politics or it's Gamergate or Comicsgate or you name people trying to be gatekeepers against, oh, we can't let them in with them in capitals and probably italics while we're at it. It's hideous. And there's no excuse, as I said. But there is, in Lovecraft's case, because of where he grew up and how he grew up, I don't want to give him a pass, but you can sort of see why. And separating art from artists can be difficult, complicated, impossible. Mm -hmm. But here's a quote from Guillermo del Toro, who points out, there's plenty of racism in Mark Twain, racism and sexism in Burroughs, and you can fault the works for being of their time, but in a way, they're a fossil record of what an American gentleman would think at the time. Now, I, 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 we want everyone to be more evolved, and we'd love that to be the case. And it is then incumbent upon us to take a step backwards. For some, that's impossible. The things he said, the things he believed, are so mean-spirited that there's no getting past it. 
He, of course, couldn't act on any of these things because he's a completely powerless human being. That said, that infects some of the work, not all of the work. It infects his relationship with his wife, with other people, and makes him a less than desirable person to sort of hang with. But the work is so undeniably brilliant that it would be a shame, as it would be in the case of Mark Twain, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Roald Dahl, whose work I love, who was apparently a virulent anti-Semite. And let's go down the, the list of movie directors and movie stars and writers and musical people. It, it's hard. And everyone has to make their own decision. Uh, I became aware of these things in reading those letters all those years ago. Real quick, while we're making our own decisions on that. Yes. Make sure you're registered to vote. Voting is in November. <laughs> Voting is in November. Make sure are important. Everybody vote. Thanks. Yes. And and make sure you, if you haven't already, depending everywhere in the country, things are different. Make sure you vote in those primaries, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. We don't get political on this show at all. Nope. I try <laughs> to keep it to a minimum. My Twitter is a different okay. story, but... Okay. Greetings, ghosts and goblins. We have plenty more to say about H.P. Lovecraft. We have so much more to say, in fact, that we had to split it into two episodes to keep from devouring all of your time. We'll be back in just a few days with more of this tantalizing conversation. See you in your nightmares. Now is the time that water begins to burn Now is the time